Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. And for this Friday night broadcast, I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how are you doing? Michael, I'm extraordinarily well. I'm very happy to be rejoined by the master. I've had my time in the hot seat on Tuesday. I have to say, Michael, you make it look so easy. <laughs> oh my God, it isn't. We have a very meaty show um, tonight. We are talking about Seymour Hersh's piece on the Nord Stream sabotage. Or was it Joe Biden? Not personally Joe Biden, of course, he didn't do the scuba diving and the planting of the bomb, but he thinks he ordered it. We are also talking about The Economist magazine. They think Rachel Reeves and Jeremy Hunt are essentially the same person. The RMT have rejected the latest offer made by Network Rail and the train operators, setting the stage for the continuation of their industrial dispute. General Secretary Mick Lynch announced the news with the following statement. We have carried out an in-depth consultation of our 40,000 members, and the message we have received loud and clear is to reject these dreadful offers. Our members cannot accept the ripping up of their terms and conditions or to have safety standards on the railway put into jeopardy under the guise of so-called modernization. If our union did accept these offers, we would see a severe reduction in scheduled maintenance tasks, making the railways less safe, the closure of all ticket offices and thousands of jobs stripped out of the industry when the railways need more investment, not less. The decision to reject the offer was made by the RMT's National Executive Committee. They met today to discuss the response of branch members to the latest offer from employers that amounted to a 9% increase over 2022 and 2023, and significantly um, with significant changes to terms and conditions. The RMT are so far not suggesting further strike dates, but will reballot to extend their mandate for further strikes in May. They get a six-month mandate at a time. Now, on this show, you often hear comments from Mick Lynch and other RMT leaders at the national level. Today, we've decided to speak to someone with a more grassroots position in the union. Mel Mullings is a train driver on the London Underground and vice president of the RMT's London Transport Regional Council. I asked her for her response to today's announcement. For an RMT member to reject an offer, it must be because it's unreasonable. So I feel good about the rejection in that they're united, they're standing together, and they've said all together that actually this offer is not satisfactory. It's a grassroots, membership-led answer, you know, to a negotiation. So I'm happy about the fact that we are rejecting it. And as far as I understand, this rejection is on the basis not of a sort of formal ballot, but an informal consultation. Now, I mean, what, what do you make of that? National Rail consultations have been going on for quite some time now. As you know, the background is, you know, our members haven't had a pay rise for over three years. And this negotiation that's been going on has been hampered by the fact that each time we go into negotiation, they're adding stuff onto it. So, you know, what we're having is an, a situation where we've just been tagged with stuff over and over again. You know, we have a concrete offer that we'd like to put to the table, to put to our members, and then it's being kiboshed by the government and also whoever, you know, this mysterious set of people who's supposed to be negotiating on behalf of the National Rail talks are supposed to be, they're supposed to be knowledgeable about what's going on. They don't have a clue. So I know on National Rail, one of the issues in their terms and conditions is about single driver operated trains. You've got drivers opening the doors and closing the doors without having another attendant there. Now you're an underground driver. You already have, I think, single operation on trains, so you close and open the doors. Can you sort of talk about that a little bit, please? 
I'll quickly, very, very quickly explain it. So on the London Underground, it's um, one person operation. But with that, we've got CCTV. We've got most of our platforms are quite straight. The ones that aren't, they're extra safety measures that are put in place. And because of the fact that we've got um, additional staff, so we have what we call special requirements teams that come out and staff the platforms at peak times. And if there's any incidents or anything, we'll have members of staff that come down. So anywhere where there is a massive problem with the curve being a very big gap on London Underground, there's extra staff. With the National Rail, it's just not safe. I've stepped onto trains before and the gaps are absolutely massive. It's not safe to not have staff on the platforms. It's not safe to not have somebody standing there to say, close the doors. You know, the platforms are quite busy. The platforms are quite long. You've got sometimes 10, 12 carriages. You know, one person can't safely depart from the platform, even enter the platform without another member of staff there. So it's a case of if you take that away, you're talking about a lot more incidents of PTI. You already have, sorry, platform train interface. I was going to use jargon there. I do apologize. Platform train interface is one of the biggest risks when going on or off the train. And that is seriously reduced when there's another member of staff there. So these things should not be tampered with or taken away. I mean, you're an RMT member, but underground workers aren't currently in dispute, are they? Or is that correct? Or am, am I misunderstanding something here? Yeah, we are in dispute. We ballot in to keep our mandate live. As you know, throughout last year, we took five different sets of strike action in the last year. There was other strike action the year before. We've also got um, localised disputes. London Underground, unfortunately, we're pretty much almost always in dispute because we find that people are always trying to impose things. They've got Fantastic um, negotiators in our unions. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a union member. I'm saying that because I worked for the underground for 20 odd years now. And I know without those consultations with members of staff, you're not going to get the outcome you need and you're not going to have a safe environment for people to work in. And is there a chance that we might see strikes on the underground soon? Might, might underground workers join strikers on national rail? Right. So at the moment, we're being reballoted. We've literally had um, an update today. As it stands, we're waiting for our pension review. Now, you might be aware that TfL is trying to find £600 million of cuts, which unfortunately included um, them looking at our pension. Now, our pension fund is self-sustaining. It doesn't need to be touched, but they seem to keep coming on to the pensions. They've had so many consultations where the pension is under review. And we keep coming to the same conclusion that the pension fund is absolutely fine. However, what we've had today was that the pension review has been pushed back. So it will be available at the end of this month rather than it would have been at the beginning of this month. So we could see strike action sort of from the end of the month once these proposals are more concrete. Absolutely. I know people are looking for budget day as a potential this is not a secret. This is not me putting anything out there that people don't know. As you know, we to comply with the law, we have to give at least seven days um, notice. So pushing back, this is a tactic, obviously, to prevent us from having, you know, what is being coined as a general strike, which, you know, we are getting there. You know, it's not just about the rail, rail workers. It's about all industries um, going out and possibly the 15th, the 16th, something like that is on the tables. You know, it's 
a strong feeling within our members at the moment. That was Mel Mullings from the RMT speaking to me earlier today. Aaron, I want to get your views on this. There had been some talk that maybe the RMT and the government were getting a little bit closer together when it came to terms and conditions. There had been some hope that this would be the strike that would be resolved first. That doesn't seem to be happening. What's your response to this development? Yeah, I'd push back on the idea that this would be the strike that would be resolved first. What the government is most politically exposed on, I think, Michael, and I think you agree on this, but you can maybe say if that's not right, is on the NHS with paramedic workers and nurses. So my view is always that there may be significant concessions to them. And then, broadly speaking, the rest of the labour market, they wouldn't do very much, certainly the public sector. Uh, there's a bit of ambiguity with other other sectors too. So for instance, teachers, university staff, and so on. But if you look at the polling, Rail workers, although there is significant amounts of support for them, rail workers are far below nurses and also below teachers in terms of public support when it comes to industrial action and and legitimacy of strikes. Now, I don't share that view. I think, obviously, they're entirely legitimate. I think a 9% pay rise, which is not in line with inflation, means falling living standards for RMT members and clearly is uh, insufficient, inadequate. We need to be growing public transport and transit in the 21st century decarbonize, to make better cities, to reduce inequality, to reduce regional inequality. Uh, So we need more trains, not less. We need more staff on these trains, not fewer. Uh, And the points made by Mel in regards to safety, you know, inarguable. You know, go on the Bakerloo line in in London, look at the gap between the train and the platform and say that that's safe and that millions of people using that every week, there'll be no disasters, no errors, uh, and there won't be tragic accidents. Of course there will be. And as you probably know, as I'm sure our audience know, I'm a big evangelist of automation and the possibility of technologies making societies better. One area they can't do that is regards to uh, safety and also things like quality control. So monitoring real-time hazards is the last thing you want to leave to a machine. So no, the idea that technological change means we should be employing fewer people on trains, completely wrong. I mean, it's also just the case, I mean, we talked about this on the show before, but there are some areas of life where automation makes everyone's quality of life better. There are some areas of life where it's just nice to have people around. If transportation you know, is a human service, we're all on those trains, we're moving from place to place, and it's quite nice to have a staff member around. You know, So you, obviously it can be more efficient from the perspective of the operator of that train if there is no staff member there. But you know, it, it's a more pleasant experience when you can ask a human a question. I think everyone has that experience, sort of like just... Speaking to a machine or having to phone up a helpline if you're unsure what's going on is is never a pleasant experience. Having someone on the train, you can just say, oh, does this train stop here? What do I have to do for X, Y, Z? That's that's pleasant. That's nice. Yeah, I suppose in response, Aaron, to your, your point about wasn't this the most likely dispute to keep continuing? I think from the from the political perspective, it makes a lot of sense, you know, that the government would hold out on this one because the train drivers, I mean, they still have pretty broad public support, but not to the extent the nurses and the teachers do. Maybe I got carried away with the, the mood music that was coming from political journalists who sort of seemed to be suggesting that this, this could maybe be about to be resolved because of the different sort of talking points that were being made by the union and the Department for Transport. But I suppose with the longer view, this shouldn't really be a surprise. Moving on. The Economist has introduced a new figure into UK political life. They've labelled them Ms. Heaves. Fairly scary picture, an amalgam of Rachel Reeves and Jeremy Hunt. And then you have a headline, Meet Ms. Heaves, the face of Britain's new political consensus. How Labour and Conservatives ended up agreeing on almost everything. 
And in this piece, they write this. In 1954, The Economist introduced readers to Mr. Butskull, this portmanteau of the Conservative Chancellor Rab Butler and his Labour predecessor Hugh Gateskull, was a personification of the post-war economic consensus that shaped Britain from the 1940s to the 1970s. Each party accepted the broad parameters of a generous welfare state, Keynesianism and full employment, until Margaret Thatcher emerged. Butskillism may be long dead, but another consensus is forming in British politics. On Brexit, the defining schism of British politics for the past seven years, each of the two main parties is committed to honing the edges of the arrangement rather than forging one anew. From immigration to foreign policy to the future of the union, there is little to choose between the parties. When it comes to the size of the state and the shape of the economy, neither Jeremy Hunt, the Tory Chancellor, nor Rachel Reeves, the Labour Shadow Chancellor, veer too far from each other's vision. Mr. Butskill has been succeeded by a new figure, Ms. Heaves. In terms of what this consensus consists of, the economists say both Hunt and Reeves share a paranoia about financial stability. And they write this. Liz Truss, the shortest-lived prime minister ever, provided a terrifying example of how bad things can get and how quickly after her budget was unveiled last autumn. Sterling plunged, guilt yields spiked and pension funds were almost impaled. Ms. Truss lost her job. Her growth at all cost philosophy will not soon be repeated. Now fiscal orthodoxy rules supreme. And this is probably the most worrying part. Boosting growth or stopping climate change come a distant second. Fiscal prudence in Ms. Heave's world. And they go on to declare this. What look like differences in policy are often mere differences in tone. Butler said both he and Gateskill spoke the language of Keynesianism, but we spoke it with different accents and with different emphasis. British politics now takes place in the interstices of a hulking consensus with politicians reduced to squabbling over a few billion pounds worth of annual state spending, mere crumbs off a one trillion pound cake. Aaron, is this a fair assessment from The Economist and does it matter? The economists love this stuff, don't they? You know, it's a, a witty portmanteau, Miss, Miss Heaves, you know, woke 21st century, because of course it was Mr. Mr. Buttskill, now it's Miss Heaves. Isn't that clever? Isn't that witty? What does it actually tell us? Not very much, I think, Michael. I'm one of those people that says, you know, portmanteaus aren't a political argument. So if somebody says, oh, you know, you're a manichist or whatever, you go, look, there's not an argument. You're not making a point. You've just joined two words together. So this isn't an analysis. You've just joined two people's names together. Now, the difference between heavesism, if such a thing exists, and I don't think it does, and buttskillism is that in the 19, late 40s, 50s, 60s, early 70s, but for three decades, let's say, well, it's the best part of three decades, that consensus between the two major parties, and there wasn't an entire consensus, because bear in mind, in the 1945 general election, Winston Churchill said that if Labour came to power, they'd be creating a British version of the Gestapo to oversee this new welfare state they were talking about. So that doesn't sound like a consensus to me. But anyway, let's say there was significant consensus, at least for the 50s and, and most of the 60s, but there was a consensus around a set of political and economic arrangements, which was leading to rising living standards and high rates of profit and a sense of social progress and things getting better. Is Heavesism doing that? It is the consensus that the economist clearly, it clearly wants these two politicians, by the way, to, to adopt that kind of consensus of putting fiscal probity above growth or climate change. Where does the electorate fit in here? Butskillism was popular and it was a thing, it was a sociological phenomenon, a political phenomenon, because it was working for ordinary men and women, ordinary people out there, right? It wasn't just, oh, the political class has decided to do this, oh, so clever them, and, you know, hangers on, which we call the electorate, well, they can like it or lump it. No, 
it was popular for a reason. Is heavesism popular? Well, I'll let our audience make their own minds up. I would submit it. It isn't, and it's not going to be. And I do find it extraordinary where you have the economists saying, we now have a consensus for the first time around, wait for it, fiscal consolidation, around probity, around, let's be honest, austerity. That's not new, guys. That's the same thing you were calling for after 2008, and which the British government adopted after 2010, and which, without any shadow of a doubt, has left this country poorer, more unequal, and more unhappy since it's been instigated at your behest and at the behest, really, of much of the financial media in this country. You now have the Financial Times saying, oh, austerity, that's so awful. Stephanie Flanders, we talked about her last week on the TV for Bloomberg News. Austerity, terrible, tragic political mistake. She was at the BBC in 2010-11 saying how smart it was. So I'll commend The Economist for this, at least, Michael. They're sticking by their guns. They are neoliberal fanatics, and that won't change even when austerity has been found out. They're basically calling for it to continue by any means necessary with two-party consensus. So on the one hand, I, I don't think it does tell us very much in terms of the realities of British politics. And on the other, the idea that this is anything new or innovative is clearly ridiculous. In the 21st century, we need a politics which sol solves people's problems. The housing crisis, low growth, regional inequality. Where do these people think Brexit came from in the first place? Or Corbynism? Or Johnson? Or the call for Scottish independence? It's because our political structures as they exist are failing to solve basic problems. Jobs, growth, rising living standards, decent communities. Walk down a high street. By the way, the people that write these op-eds in The Economist, they don't do that very much if it's not in London or Manchester. Go to a small English town, walk through the high street, tell me that we have this wonderful consensus around, you know, fiscal property and not, you know. Shut up. Shut up. You're living in a little fantasy world, writing these op-eds in central London without actually engaging with the reality of living in a democracy, where, by the way, the electorate count and the problems that this country faces. You know, in defense of the article, the one thing that rings true is the idea that the political leaders we have are only debating about relatively marginal things on the edges of policy. And you'll see this constantly. I mean, we talk about this all the show or on the, on the show all the time where you've got Labour saying they've got this big critique of Tories underfunding the NHS and Tories underfunding an, uh, education. And then they come out with one policy where they're going to just get three billion pound in tax by taxing non-doms or by putting tax on private schools, really, really minor amounts of money compared to what is required. And you, you, you then can see it looks like they're offering very much the same thing. I agree with you, Aaron, that this is not going to become a big consensus like butskalism did. And I agree with you for the same reason. I mean, it's interesting also, you know, your point about there wasn't always this consensus from the 1945 election where you've got Churchill saying Labour are going to reintroduce the Gestapo. The Tories also obviously opposed the introduction of the NHS. But why the consensus emerged is because actually, through that 1945 Labour government, Labour introduced a bunch of policies and institutions that turned out to be very popular, especially once they were introduced, which means it was very difficult to take them away. You could say Margaret Thatcher did a similar thing in the 1980s, especially with right to buy and creating a, a society of homeowners. I think it had disastrous consequences for most of us, but it became very difficult for political parties which had originally vociferously opposed Thatcherism to then go against its fundamental tenets. So you ended up having New Labour who were you know, very much in favour of that political economic settlement because it had worked for lots of people. It's difficult to see who the last 13 years have worked for, right? Because as you say, Aaron, this is not an innovative point of agreement they've come to. They're just saying fiscal consolidation, austerity. What we have seen 
for the past 13 years, which has been terrible for everyone. So how they think a, a, a political consensus is going to emerge from this is rather mysterious, let's say. Let's go on to our next story, a very meaty on this. Seymour Hirsch is a veteran investigative political journalist and political writer. He was the first journalist to expose the 1968 My Lai massacre and its cover-up for which he won the Pulitzer Prize. Hirsch also uncovered the clandestine American bombing of Cambodia and extensively reported on the outrages at Abu Ghraib prison. And Hirsch has now released a new investigation which seeks to uncover what he believes to be another cover-up. The article relates to the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines, which link Russian gas to Europe in September last year. Now, to jog your memory, here's how that incident was reported by CNN at the time. Like a boiling cauldron, the busy Baltic Sea bursting with gas from ruptured Russian Nord Stream reinforced pipelines. More than an inch of steel coated in places in approximately four inches of concrete. Not easy to break. These pipelines are only in about 200 feet or so of water. And Russia does have an undersea capability to, that would easily lay explosive devices by those pipelines. Denmark's foreign minister uncharacteristically cautious about Russian ships seen in the area days prior. I don't want to go into speculation. Unity among allies about not blaming Russia without evidence. We're not going to get ahead of the investigation. Danish and German warships deployed to secure the area. Norway putting its nearby energy infrastructure on heightened alert too, as Sweden begins an investigation. The Kremlin announcing its own preliminary investigation into possible international terrorism. Here in Moscow, of course, many people uh, say that uh, we should look at uh, who might benefit uh, from uh, uh, this incident. And of course, they point at the United States, which might uh, uh, find it easier to sell its gas to Europe. It could be weeks before European investigators get a close look. And the pipes that recently stopped sending gas to Europe may never be fixed. There's no kind of turning back on uh, the gas issues, and it's not then going to be possible for Europe to continue to build up its gas reserves for the winter. But even before knowing if Russia's responsible, assessments of what it means are being made. I do think it's a signal to Europe that Russia can reach beyond Ukraine's borders. Uh, so who knows what he might be planning next. So as you saw there, the report was clear. No one was certain who was responsible for the sabotage of the pipelines. But the background assumption appeared to be it was probably Russia. That was the ruling assumption which would need to be disproved. Seymour Hirsch, though, disagrees. This is the title of his self-published article on Substack, How America Took Out the Nord Stream Pipeline. He says the New York Times called it a mystery, but the United States executed a covert sea operation that was kept secret until now. So in the article, he writes this. Two of the pipelines, which were known collectively as Nord Stream 1, had been providing Germany and much of Western Europe with cheap Russian natural gas for more than a decade. A second pair of pipelines, called Nord Stream 2, had been built but were not yet operational. Now, with Russian troops massing on the Ukrainian border and the bloodiest war in Europe since 1945 looming, President Joe Biden saw the pipelines as a vehicle for Vladimir Putin to weaponize natural gas for his political and territorial ambitions. Biden's decision to sabotage the pipelines came after more than nine months of highly secret back and forth debate inside Washington's national security community 
about how best to achieve that goal. For much of that time, the issue was not whether to do the mission, but how to get it done with no overt clue as to who was responsible. Hirsch later went on to describe that secret planning process. So he writes this. In December of 2021, two months before the first Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine, Jake Sullivan, that's Biden's national security advisor, convened a meeting of a newly formed task force, men and women from the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the CIA, and the State and Treasury Departments, and asked for recommendations about how to respond to Putin's impending invasion. What became clear to participants, according to the source with direct knowledge of the process, is that Sullivan intended for the group to come up with a plan for the destruction of the two Nord Stream pipelines and that he was delivering on the desires of the president. Hirsch says the covert operation was carried out by an elite group of divers who attached explosives to the Nord Stream pipelines in the shallow waters of the Baltic Sea. He says the explosives were planted under the cover of a routine military exercise in June last year, and they would then be detonated remotely in September. Big claims. It's important to be clear, though, Hirsch's account has come in for some criticism. The main line of attack made against the journalist is that this rather elaborate account is all written on the basis of a single anonymous source. And it has been suggested that this is the reason he had to self-publish the account instead of going to you know, an actual established newspaper. But, and this is also important, the idea that the Americans would be behind the sabotage of the pipelines is not outlandish. Noam Chomsky this week gave this damning assessment of the mainstream media's coverage of the Nord Stream explosions. Take the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipeline. Spin, it was immediately blamed on the Russians, which is almost inconceivable. Why on earth should the Russians sabotage their own major capital investment? And for what possible purpose? If they wanted to stop gas from flowing to Europe, all they have to do is turn a lever. They don't have to destroy their main capital investment. So the idea was crazy in the first place. Uh, If you ask which country, had the capability and the motivation to destroy the pipeline. It's immediately obvious. The United States wasn't a secret even. They kept saying, we have to stop this pipeline. Uh, President Biden said, uh, we're going to prevent it. You know, uh, Nobody else, maybe Poland working for the United States, but nobody else had. But you just cannot say this. And it's interesting the way it's handled. I wrote an article about it recently. There was a spate of articles in the press a couple of weeks ago saying there's now some skepticism about whether Russia sabotaged the pipeline. That's brilliant propaganda. The idea that Russia sabotaged the pipeline is outlandish. But we now establish the assumption, the presupposition, that Russia was responsible, not us. We don't even talk about that. But to show how free and open we are, we even allow some skepticism about this idiotic idea. That's sophisticated propaganda. If you're not inclined to be persuaded by the likes of Seymour Hirsch or Noam Chomsky, you might also listen to Joe Biden and his aides themselves. Last February, after a meeting with the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, the US president said this. If Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the, uh, the, the border of Ukraine. Uh, 
again, then uh, there will be uh, we there will be no longer a Nord Stream two. We we will bring an end to it. What do you, what how will you how will you do that exactly? Since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control, we will. Uh, I promise you, we will be able to do it. Three weeks before Biden made that assurance, his Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, Victoria Newland, had said this. With regard to Nord Stream 2, uh, we continue to have uh, very strong and clear conversations uh, with our German allies. And I want to be clear with you today. If Russia invades Ukraine, one way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. How can you say that for sure? Where does your confidence come from on that? As I said, we've had extensive consultations at every level uh, with our German allies. I'm not going to get into the specifics here today, but we will work with Germany to ensure that the pipeline does not move forward. And we should be clear, neither Newland or Biden there were admitting their willingness and desire to blow up the Nord Stream pipelines. Biden was giving a press conference with the German chancellor when he made that claim. And the most obvious interpretation of both of their interventions was that they were confident Germany would block the opening of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline as they went on to do. Indeed, neither Nord Stream 1 or 2 were providing Europe with gas by the time of the explosion. But the phrasing and confidence of both Biden and Newland was notable. In particular, Newland saying, one way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. And it was that kind of phrasing that meant when the act of sabotage ultimately came to pass, a Polish MEP and former foreign minister tweeted this, thank you, USA. And that's a picture of the bubbles coming up from the sabotaged Nord Stream pipeline. It's important to say that Seymour Hersh's article is not conclusive proof that the United States blew up Nord Stream 2. It's not conclusive proof, I would suggest. Important to say a single source in the news gathering game is inadequate. Normally, for instance, I think BBC, although it's changed innumerable times and it's often not observed, normally with the BBC, if you report a story, there have to be two independent sources corroborating something, or it can be the Press Association or Reuters. That's how seriously you know, taken Reuters and, and PA are. If they say something's happened, great, we'll run with that bulletin, we'll put it on the 6 o'clock news, we'll put it on BBC Online. If it's not, then we need two independent sources. So Hirsch doesn't have that. Very important to say. Doesn't mean he's wrong. Doesn't mean that source is inaccurate. For all we know, that source might be supremely senior, very well networked, and Hirsch has made a judgment call saying, you know what, well, that's good enough for me. But it's important to say, as a general rule of thumb, you would need two independent sources. And I think you're right. That's why it's appeared in Substack and not in a newspaper or a major outlet of some kind. Yes, these are distasteful arguments to be made, given the wider political atmosphere right now, but I still think it would have been published in somewhere like, say, The Nation, if it had more sources than it does. What I think it does do is provide another layer to almost a circumstantial argument for the United States doing it. And it's not a circumstantial argument, but the basis of all of this is that the United States has a clear motive to do this and Russia doesn't. Now, again, that doesn't mean that Russia hasn't done it and the United States has. But normally when we talk about issues of, of law, of, of crime, of misdeeds, motive is a, is a major thing. The Russians have no motivation, no sensible reason to destroy a piece of infrastructure which cost $11 billion to put together and which allowed them to export hydrocarbons to mainland Europe. There is no 
sensible argument for it. There isn't. They may have done it still. There are lots of stupid things that politicians and nation states do in history. But that's the first point. The second point, like you say, Michael, is that there were major motives for the United States to do it. Again, I'm not saying that's a a sufficient argument or proof that they did do it, but they have a motive, whereas Russia don't. Secondly, you see things like you say, the Sikorsky tweet. Now, Radek Sikorsky is the husband of Anne Applebaum. This man is a Polish, former Polish politician. He is an Atlanticist to his core. He's not some random shit poster, okay? He is, you know, the, the kind of person who would probably have a NATO flag somewhere in his house. So the fact that he tweeted that so imprudently before deleting it tells you something, right? So it's not just, you know, nutjob lefties like you and me who are saying this or suggesting it, okay? It's people like Radek Sikorsky. So we have motive. We have a, a senior former Polish politician and Atlanticist saying something like that publicly. And now we have uh, this article from uh, Mr. Hirsch where he asserts he has a source corroborating that it was the United States, not Russia. I don't think it's a conclusive argument. I don't think it's case closed. But I think it's another additive layer to a pretty strong case that this was the United States and it wasn't Russia. Now, to an extent, it's immaterial. It doesn't matter, right? We're not, we're not contesting the facts over a war crime or something heinous like that. And it's important to say, during military conflicts, you do have black operations just like this. It's not unusual. Russia does it too. But it is important to say that given the conflict is protracted, it's intensifying, and because of our involvement now with Ukraine, that's true both the the United Kingdom and the United States, sending military hardware, but also training soldiers, I do think it's now very important to have an honest, open debate around these kinds of things. You have to have journalism actually telling the truth. Once we have political and military involvement in this conflict, I don't think not telling the full story is is appropriate. And you you can say that about a range of things in the Ukraine conflict. For instance, we're not getting um, accurate casualty numbers from the front. The argument hitherto has been, well, uh, we don't want to give the Russians a propaganda win. That's a sensible thing to say. I understand that. But if you're saying at the same time, as Tobias Elwood is, he's a conservative MP in this country, that we're effectively on a war footing with Russia, then no, the British public needs to actually be in receipt of pretty strong information as to what is happening over there. If you're saying we're now on a war footing, we need to have a damn good idea what we're getting involved in. And the same applies with regards to Nord Stream 2. So it's a stronger case, but like I said, it's far from case closed. We should be clear what the respective or purported motives would be. So from the US perspective, you know, they've never supported Nord Stream 2. For one reason, it's because they want to export their liquefied natural gas which they frack in North America to Europe. So there's sort of a clear financial motive. The other is that they don't want there to be this sort of permanent link between Europe and Russia, whereby Europe is dependent on Russia because that lowers their influence over Europe, of course, right? Someone might say in response, but look, these pipelines already weren't transferring gas from Russia to Europe. Germany had already, well, they say they cancelled Nord Stream 2. Many people just said they paused it because while it's there, you can reopen it. Russia had stopped transferring gas via Nord Stream 1 to try and put pressure on Europe. So that exchange wasn't happening at that point in time. For me, the motive for the US there would be that you can imagine some period down the line where there are negotiations going on and the Germans are desperate for Nord Stream to be turned back on, right? And so in in peace negotiations, uh, the Germans are saying, no, let's let's concede this to the Russians because we want them to turn it back on. If you damage Nord Stream, then you've taken that off the table. 
the purported motive for, so it seems plausible, the purported motive for Russia, I was looking this up today because I was sort of seeing, so the people who say this was Russia, why would they have done this? Why would they have damaged their own infrastructure, which they co-own with some European governments? And the only motive or purported motive I could find is that they wanted to give European countries the jitters by showing they had the capacity to blow up things such as underwater pipes and that this would make the Europeans more inclined to want the war to end quickly so that Russian special operation forces wouldn't also blow up their underwater infrastructure. And I say, Aaron, I found the US motive is more persuasive than the Russian motive, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty obvious to anybody who's remotely acquainted with the facts. You have the, the military political motive, which is to, 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 to weaken Russia's connections with Europe. And again, look, this, I'm not, this is not a value judgment. I can see it's being clipped up by some, some right-wing ghouls. Saying, okay, I'm not, you know, the State Department has its foreign policy interests and it pursues those. We're trying to get to the facts of what has happened. There's the political military motive, which is to decouple Russia and Europe. The US would say, yes, quite right, because Russia is a threat to democracy and security in the West. There's a separate one, which is the economic argument, Michael, because, of course, with the absence of gas flowing now into Europe from Russia, um, exports of United States liquid natural gas increased, I think, by about 130% in 2022. So there is a longer term argument, an economic argument, because the United States is a massive net exporter of gas now, of liquid natural gas. That is what is now replacing the previous imports from Russia. So there are, there's a multitude, you know, there's a number of um, motives as to why this would be in the United States' best interests. A great convergence of military, geopolitical, uh, economic, commercial objectives, all in one. So, uh, of course, it makes perfect sense. Just to top it off, though, to say it's, it's Russia instead, where it's the complete inverse, right? This doesn't make sense from either a commercial or a geopolitical perspective. It's kind of hard to believe. Now, yes, Vladimir Putin's done many strange things. I mean, the invasion of Ukraine is in many ways inexplicable. Many aspects of it strange. The nature of it, incredibly strange. The fact that they only did, did a sort of partial mobilization after multiple military failures, very strange. Of course, this seems categorically different, though. The idea that a country would sink $11 billion worth of its own energy infrastructure, which makes it an immense amount of money, and gives it an immense amount of geopolitical leverage. I, I find it very hard to believe. It would be one of the most inexplicable acts in contemporary history. Let's move on. We've got some bad news for you, I'm afraid. One of the most effective socialist conspiracies we had going has been rumbled. The detective work was done by none other than the Conservative MP for Don Valley, Nick Fletcher. Will the leader please set aside some time in this house for a debate on the international socialist concept of so-called 15-minute cities and 20-minute neighbourhoods? Ultra-large emission zones in their present form do untold economic damage to any city. However, the second step after these zones will take away personal freedoms as well. Sheffield is already on this journey and I do not want Doncaster, which is also a Labour-run socialist council, to do the same. Low emission zones cost the taxpayer money, simple as. However, 15-minute cities will cost us our personal freedom and that cannot be right. That was the remarkably charismatic Nick Fletcher exposing the international plot to install low emission zones, 15-minute cities and 20-minute neighbourhoods around the country and the world. Now, if you weren't aware of the secretive plans, 15-minute cities, 
the idea of designing urban environments so that most daily necessities and services such as work, shopping, education, health and leisure should be easily reachable within 15 minutes, either by walking or on a bike. The 20-minute neighbourhood is a variation on the theme. So 20 minutes instead of 15 minutes. I'd go for 15 minutes, but you know, I'd settle for 20 minutes, I suppose. Aaron, why is a Conservative MP standing up in Parliament and suggesting he's exposing this international socialist plan to make cities walkable? Well, of course, Michael, if you look at page uh, 326 of the Penguin version of Capital Volume 2, Marx is extraordinarily specific about the need for 15-minute cities. Um, it's repeated throughout the canon of leftist thinking in the 19th century, Proudhon, Bakunin, all the way through then to the 20th century, Benjamin and, and, and Antonio Gramsci. Talk about the need to be able to walk around your town or city. Of course, Michael, being serious, this is absurd, it's nutty, and it's being said by this Conservative MP precisely because they have no governing agenda of their own. These people are only against things. The whole point of a 15-minute city, 15-minute neighbourhood, is that we basically return to the kind of urban configuration you see before the 1960s and the creation of mass highways running right through cities, right? You saw it in Glasgow, you saw it in Manchester, you saw it particularly in New York. Robert Moses, very famous for it, was very bad. It could have been far worse. Um, it was stopped by people like uh, Jane Jacobs, you know, basically demolishing whole communities. The Bronx, a very famous one, and just putting a massive motorway right through the middle of it. And I thought conservatives liked the world before the 1960s, Michael. I thought they wanted to go back to tradition as they see it. But apparently when it comes to urban environments, being able to walk to places or cycle or just a, a short trip to go to vital places like you know your work and your school and your GP to be able to get basic groceries and whatnot, apparently not. Apparently, if we go back to the world as it was before the 1960s, as it was basically for the entirety of human history, that's a Marxist, um, that's a Marxist conspiracy. I can't wait for this man to no longer be in parliament. There are just so many fools like him in the Houses of Parliament as a result of the 2019 general election, purely because they stood on Brexit. And they went to communities that voted leave and they said, we'll, we'll deliver Brexit. And he's now been voted in and he's, a, he's, a, he's an MP or many other ones too. And they haven't the slightest idea about how to make the country better for most people. And so they rally against completely nonsensical stuff like this. You know what? Let's do the conservative thing and make it harder to get around the city. Let's make your quality of life even worse. I promise that'll be my number one electoral pledge. More traffic jams. Come on, the man's an idiot. Now, I have an admission to make. I, was, uh, I misled you a little bit, actually, at the beginning of this section, because I said it was Nick Fletcher who did the detective work in uncovering this socialist conspiracy. In fact, he's not the first guy to come up with this theory, and he was drawing upon a broader right-wing paranoia about walkable cities. You will only have 15 minutes of freedom here in the UK. So let me tell you the plan. The plan is in Oxford, and this has just been passed by the council, to divide the city here into the squiggly city into six parts. So one, two, three, four, five, six. And you will only have the freedom to operate in the part that you live. So if this is you, the idea is that everybody will live within 15 minutes of the things they need. 15 minutes of a school, 15 minutes of a doctor's, 15 minutes of a supermarket. And if you want to travel to the other zones in your city, or maybe soon your town, you will have to go out an approved route 
you will have to journey around the outside of the city in order to re-enter another section of the city. This plan is supposed to be saving the planet. And the idea is that you won't simply be able to cross over into other sections of your city anymore. So if your mother, for example, lived over here, you wouldn't be able to just go across and see her. This would all be done via e-gates, electronic gates and number plate recognition. You in your area will only be allowed within that 15 minute zone that you've been allocated. The number plate recognition will know if you leave your zone and you can apply for permission, a permit to leave your zone and travel to another zone, but you'll only be allowed to do this about a hundred times a year. This is real. I just have to stop and say that. This has actually been passed by Oxford Council. This is happening in the next two years, 2024 it begins. What Katie Hopkins is talking about there is a traffic management scheme. Right, There are no Berlin walls being erected to stop people going from one part of Oxford City to another part. No, this is, this is managing which roads traffic goes down. This does have legs, though. Lots of people have been talking about this. And in response to a big uproar, um, in part stoked by the likes of Katie Hopkins, I'm sure there are also some general concerns among Oxford residents. In response to those, Oxford City Council released this statement clarifying the nature of the scheme. This is how they reassured residents. The traffic filters work in exactly the same way as the existing traffic cameras in High Street and are widely used in cities across the UK to manage congestion and support public transport. Residents will still be able to drive to every part of the city at any time, but in the future, during certain times of the day, you may need to take a different route. For example, using the ring road. That's if you want to travel by car. The reason we have proposed these changes is because, as everyone who lives and visits Oxford knows, the city has had awful congestion for decades. This is damaging both our economy and our environment and is making the bus network unviable. Our aim is to reduce traffic levels and congestion, make the buses faster and more reliable, and make cycling and walking safer and more pleasant. Those reassurances, though, were not enough to stop the controversy going international Two weeks after that statement, Jordan Peterson tweeted this. The idea that neighbourhoods should be walkable is lovely. The idea that idiot, tyrannical bureaucrats can decide by fiat where you're allowed to drive is perhaps the worst imaginable perversion of that idea. And make no mistake, it's part of a well-documented plan. That plan is the, the Great Reset. That's the idea that a liberal, global elite wants to control and surveil us all under the pretense of combating climate change and COVID-19. Aaron, I suppose before we talked about what this says about the Tory MP speaking about it in Parliament, I mean, here, I suppose I want you to comment on the broader cultural phenomenon. Is this going to be a significant new front in the culture war? And how much legs will it have, particularly, I suppose, pitching car drivers against people who want pedestrianised cities? Well, it's fucking stupid, so presumably it will be, Michael. Presumably it'll be front and centre of our politics for the next 25 years. I mean, that's, that seems to be the way of the world. What Katie Hopkins is rallying against there, she's they're all going through six parts of the city. You're describing city quarters. Those have literally existed since we had cities, okay? You go to Florence, there are multiple quarters. You go to Paris, there are multiple quarters. You're describing a city before the 1960s that you can't just drive right through the city centre. That's, that's how cities work. Now, you can, you can say that's a, that's a good thing. You shouldn't go back. It's fine. 
But the idea is part of some Machiavellian top-down global conspiratorial revolution overseen by socialist World Economic Forum elites is painfully wrong, okay? We're going back purely to how cities and towns were configured until 60 years ago. That doesn't make sense to me. And on Jordan Peterson's point, Michael, you know, the idea, I'm not even going to do his voice, but uh, listen, Sonny Jim, he does these weird, archaic, Anglo, like, you know, Anglo-Canadian um, phrases. The phrase you said, Michael, that bureaucrats can manage traffic. Well, yes, that's what they do, Jordan. Can you imagine if this chap was around and he was driving cars and all of a sudden somebody invented traffic lights and roundabouts and zebra crossings? He would say, that's an in you're inhibiting my liberty. How dare you put a traffic light there? You're managing the traffic. You're stopping my motion where I want to go. You're inhibiting my freedom. They would. These people would rally against one-way streets, traffic lights, parking meters, presumably parking spots, any, any kind of traffic management. Signs? I mean, it's, it's completely nutty. Often with, you, with these, and they are on the far right, these people. I think John Peterson is adjacent to lots of people on the far right, frankly. Particularly, I think, in dispute on this issue, Katie Hopkins is on the far right. Sometimes they'll say things and you think, okay, there's a kernel of truth. There's something interesting here. Okay, so with the vaccine passports, there was a genuine civil liberties debate around whether or not somebody's freedom of movement should be curtailed because they've not accepted a vaccine, right? We can have that conversation. Some people think one thing, some people think another. There is a genuine civil liberties debate to be had, and you have to balance the interests and the arguments. This is not true here, okay? People don't want to have to, you know, drive for an hour to work. Commutes are far too long. And if you said to most people, I want to reduce your commute. I want to make it easier to, to, to find parking where you live. We want fewer uh, cars on the road. So if you do need to drive, you're a tradesperson, you've got a large family, whatever, It'll make life easier for you too, okay? I want to make it easier for you to be able to stay in touch with your elderly relatives. I want it to be easier for your kids to be able to walk to school. You know, right now, you only want them to do it when they're 14, 15. What if we could do it in such a way they could start doing safely when they're 11, 12? Most people go, okay, interesting. How do we do that? And again, they might not agree with the conclusions, but it's a debate they'd be up for. And the objectives are certainly very alluring and appealing. But if you listen to Katie Hopkins, no, we want our children to drive. You know, that's it. The, the parent can drive the kid to school. The longer, the better. The more inefficient the journey, the better. The more traffic jams, the bigger the smile. This is madness. This is absolute madness. And like I say, it's people who don't have a political agenda of their own. And I think conservatism really with the collapse of capitalist growth, which is what we're seeing, by the way. Park that. It's a big word I've just said there. Park that for another day. But we're seeing lower economic growth decade on decade. We've seen in a ever expanding number of countries, what are being called lost decades. So there's no economic growth from the neoliberal economic model, right? There's no rising living standards. And so these people don't have a propositional political project. They don't. And actually, the best critics of it are coming from the left. So they have to invent whole new spheres where they can do politics and be propositional. And it means they're having to reach desperately forever more insane stuff. Now, that doesn't mean that all LTNs are good. Right? Sometimes local government will put a cycle path in somewhere and it doesn't work and the electorate doesn't like it and they have to get rid of it again. That's, that's life. That's democracy. I get it. But the ambition of having cities where you can basically access all the things you need within 15, 20 minutes, I think actually every sensible person wants that. Sorry to have shocked you there with the, you know, our, our, our very effective, actually, socialist international plan has been foiled. I'm going to kick you while you're down, though, because the next story is also shocking. We've got a pretty shocking clip to show you. So if you're feeling fragile, feel free to turn away now.
Those MPs who drank the Kool-Aid and got rid of Boris Johnson are already asking themselves the question, who next? And I'm afraid that the lack of cohesion, the infighting, and occasionally the sheer stupidity from those who think we could have removed a sitting prime minister who secured a higher percentage of the vote share than Tony Blair did in 1997, just three short years ago, that they could do that and the public would let us get away with it. I'm afraid it's this behaviour that I now have to just remove myself from. And so, despite it being a job that I've loved for every year that I've done it, I'm now off. My gosh, I just said it out loud. There's no going back now. Wow. So, guys, did you expect that? She's struggling to hold back the tears. So am I. Nadine Norris is going to stand now, no longer a representative in Parliament. Aaron, she was getting pretty emotional. Are you? Are you, are you, are you feeling moved, touched? Are you going to miss her presence in political life in this country? Well, if I seem entirely indifferent to it, Michael, it's because I uh, megadosed a load of Xanax before we went on air. <laughs> I'm actually distraught that uh, Nadine Dorries will no longer be among the 650 most important legislators in our country. I mean, she's obviously so well qualified for the job. She adds so much value. She's immensely intelligent. And one of the great problem solvers of the 21st century, I mean, she's up there in terms of problem solving with the people behind the Apollo program. No, people like her shouldn't really be in politics, ideally. She's not, like I say, a great problem solver. She's a kind of influencer slash celebrity slash pundit, which is sadly where a lot of politicians are going, right? And that's not just, that's not just the Conservatives. A lot of politicians now think their job is punditry. And actually, no, it's two things. It's representing the interests of your constituents, but it's also participating within a national process where you solve the big problems of your day, okay? So those are on energy, on housing, you know, geopolitics, obviously, in the last uh, 18 months, a bunch of things, climate transition. So, no, she shouldn't have been in Parliament in the first place, and frankly, we can't get rid of her quickly enough. I have to say, though, Michael, I know you're a big fan, uh, as is Ash, because... Okay, I've talked about some of her downsides, the fact she's an inadequate legislator, but she is entertaining. My counterpoint to that, Michael, would be she is entertaining, and that is not good enough to be in Parliament. <laughs> no, you are right, Aaron. For my sins, I do have a little bit of a soft spot for Nadine Doris. Of course, not her politics, her policies, but she just speaks like a camp icon. She's a bit ridiculous. She's entertaining and in honour of her. We couldn't end this segment without showing some of her best bits. I'm sure there are lots of prime ministers who've received fixed penalty notices for lots of things. Speeding? No. It's a fixed penalty notice. I've certainly had to. So I'll hold my hands up to them. So I didn't have fixed penalty notices for Partygate. They were for speeding. <laughs> I have Netflix, but there are four other people who can use my Netflix accounts in different parts of the country. Just learn something. So I think they're going to probably change their, um, their model. Well, am I not supposed to do that? I don't know. <laughs> As you were, soon stability extends to the cabinet with the big beefsteak and all their cages, but Bradman back at home in the Home Office. Sorry, I've just completely messed up. They're in our studio and we've risked them for a clue. Stick around for Just Stop Oil live. So, um, Richard, I have to ask you about Channel 4. Do you think we should Patrick. be proud... Uh, Patrick, sorry. Do you think we should be proud of programmes like My Massive Cock on Channel 4? Did I just say that? We should never 
kind of audit the future of Channel 4 and we should never evaluate how Channel 4 looks in the future and whether or not it's a sustainable and viable model. It's quite right that the government should do that. But, but Channel 4 is not like the BBC. Uh, it, it, it's not in receipt of licence fee money. It, no. it, it makes its money from commercial operations. And so, although it's, yeah, and the... There is nothing so X as an XMP, particularly an XMP who is, um, has been in government and just in the past year of opposition. No one wants to know what you have to say. No one wants to hear you, especially not the people stood next to you in the job centre queue. <laughs> farewell, Nadine, farewell. You should never have been as close to power as you were. You should never have been culture secretary threatening to vandalise one of our country's greatest cultural institutions. But you did have some good lines and we enjoyed watching them along the way. Aaron Bastani, it's been a pleasure being joined by you this Friday evening. My pleasure, Michael. She looks, she's found her level at Talk TV. That's great. She can have a chat show, which should be a YouTube channel. Brilliant. I'm made up for her and I'm made up for the British public because she certainly shouldn't be in Parliament. I agree. I concur. Thank you for watching Navarra Life. We'll be back on Monday at 6pm. Have a great weekend. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.